Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast where I bring you the best and the brightest in the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. Excited to welcome my guest today, Tyrell Kirkham, and unpack his career journey in professional sports marketing. He is currently the VP of brand marketing for the Detroit Pistons and previous tenure with the LA Rams, Brooklyn, Brooklyn Nets, and my New York Mets. Today, we'll dig into his story and touch on what effective leadership means, true brand marketing, and cultural integration into pro sports. So let's do it. Tyrell, my man, welcome to the podcast. Oh, man. Adam, that's an honor. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. And I appreciate you doing things the right way and getting that tech crew in there to get you up and running. So big shout out to the, the uh, is that the Pistons, the Pistons crew over there crew, getting us up and running? Best in the business. The best IT tech team in the business here. So so let's jump in. You know, the, the show is really about unpacking career journeys and trying to share wisdom and all those key learnings to everybody. So you're you're a fellow SUNY guy. I went to SUNY Buffalo. Um, talk about that transition, man. Like, you know, senior year of college, and I'm, we're hitting the way back machine here, right? Like, did you always know you wanted to go into professional sports? What was that like, man? I mean, shout out to SUNY. Um, I went to SUNY Cortland for great years of education. Um, I, I knew I wanted to work in sports. I knew I had a love for business and, you know, my major really sport management at the time in high school was hopefully to accomplish those two in tandem. Uh, so majoring in sport management, but still didn't know exactly what that meant or really what the world entailed in sports and how I can insert myself in, in an environment. Um, so ended up really focusing on, you know, the sponsorship side, understanding the marketing piece. But, you know, you got to break through, break through the walls and hopefully be afforded the opportunity to showcase those skill sets, but also to learn. And, uh, you know, internship opportunity came along for our New York Mets and uh, growing up a lifelong fan. And again, the aforementioned love for both sports and business was one of those opportunities the that dream. I couldn't pass up. So let's talk about let's talk about that first day. And let's let's hit the rewind button for a second. Were you at, uh, was it Chase Stadium or was it City Field yet? So I was I was uh, with Shea at Shea, 2004 was my internship. So had a few years at Shea to to live those memories, and then we got the uh, the upgrade to City Field. Let's talk about your your fondest memory. I mean, I'm I'm not. It's your show, man. I mean, I have some great. I, I interned with the Buffalo Sabers when I was in college up in Buffalo. I have some great stories which I'll share another time. But uh, there's some great. I mean, when you intern for a professional sports team, you get access. You get access to things. You see things. You're at the games. Tell us, tell us one of those kind of early, early lessons on from those first days uh, interning for the Mets. I mean, 2004, 
outside of being, I consider myself a world-class stapler, photocopier, shredder. <laughs> <Busted> class. <laughs> uh, all, all, all things that my I did. My shredding skills my first... are on point. Listen, um, I will tell you this. One of my first assignments as a New York Mets intern, I was working in a baseball operations department, and they had uh, an archive of old catcher signals from throughout, throughout the minor leagues and, and major leagues. And a buddy of mine who is still one of my closest friends today, um, we interned together and did sort of the greatest things of the world and also just some of those mundane tasks, but all of which we welcome with open arms. We had to shred all of the catcher signals from all divisions, from you know single A up to the majors, and that was our job for like two weeks straight. Yeah, did you did you you, you looked at them when you were going through them? I'm sure you were like checking them out, and or were they kind of mundane at that sure point? Sure did. No, no, no. I was I was. It was kind of hard to stay on task without you know just being inquisitive. You want to know? Okay, th this is what's going on. Is it is it changing drastically? But let me just continue with my business and not uh, meddle too much. But let's let's. <laughs> let's it, it's funny. I mean, I had some great intern stories from the mundane, right? I was I was really good at multitasking on the copier, like trying to figure out the algorithm to make sure it collated, stapled to make my job as easy as possible. But one of the things I learned from internships is things I didn't like. So when I went out into the real world, it's like, all right, I didn't like some of the finance stuff. I didn't like certain things there. What was something that you didn't like from your internship days at the Mets that when you transitioned into, you know, on the payroll for the Mets that you didn't want to be doing? Yeah, you know, the one thing that I tried to do was just soak up the opportunity. So I spent my summer just knocking on doors and cubicles to see who I can get some time with in hopes that they would shed some light on what they do and I can sort of glean the things that I love and the things that maybe aren't suited for my skill set. Uh, maybe that's not the path that I wanted to go down. And had the chance arrange from, you know, venue services to uh, marketing to operations to finance. Everyone afforded me the opportunity to pick their brain. Things like finance, things like operations just didn't feel like they were best suited for my creativity, per se. Um, so it was a great opportunity. And those people love their jobs. And what I would soon come to find out is even when you're in those marketing roles, finance is pivotal to your success. Obviously, yeah, op building operations where you want to do things on the field, uh, just the nature of baseball with the the grass, and you want to you want to bring kids out on the on the morning track for an appearance. Like somebody has to weigh in there and tell you nay, or you know, in certain instances, you may get the green light. So you know, it was it was really beneficial for me to sit down with those people and and learn what I love, learn the things that uh, I should probably steer clear of. What are your thoughts? And I mean, a little bit of a side note here. You know, I, I see a lot of stuff on LinkedIn and elsewhere about you know, don't don't work for free. Internships are worthless and everything. What are your thoughts on free internships? I know when I worked for the Sabers, I didn't get paid. Did you get paid as a Mets intern? I did not. And um, I mean, is it a different I, age I got of some time? College credits, right? I mean, is it a different? I got some college credits. But what would you say now to kids out there if if they have an amazing opportunity to intern somewhere and it's not paid? You got to hustle hard, and whatever opportunity comes your way, welcome it with open arms. If you have options and there's an opportunity to get paid, by all means, do so. But just to put things in perspective, summer of '04, I interned for the New York Mets, and you know my grandparents owned an outdoor produce company for 40 years. Uh, we wholesaled produce throughout Long Island and New York City, and I used to go home after working 40, 50, 60 hours with the Mets, and my grandfather would still put me to work. And you know that wasn't a full paycheck by no. any means, but it was it was just the hustle that was needed, and having that balance of just grinding while I can, knowing that. You know, in the back nine, I'd be able to uh, hopefully celebrate. You had to put the work in uh, on the early part of your career, for so, sure. 
so what's changed? I mean, like now I'm gonna sound. Now we're gonna literally sound like those two grumpy old men in the, in the Muppets, right? But why do you think kids these days are like opposed to the hustle, man? Like I feel like it's so different. I feel like back back in our day, Tyrell, like we <laughs> we would bust our ass, we would work, we would work for free, and look where it's gotten us today. I mean, what's changed? What's your take on that, man? Yeah, I mean, I will say I'm not gonna lump everybody together. I, I've had no. some interns as of late that you know their ambition, their hustle is, is second to none, and it's it's nice to see that. You you know, you really want to see the world better off than you left it. And I see that there's kids with drive that are coming in that are inquisitive, that want to be their best version of themselves. Um, but I also think it's a it's a different game, we're, you know, that we're in. And for us, you know, I used to get the story of there's a million other people lined up to take your job. Now there's, you know, more options when you think about right. how the world has evolved. It's not just the four major sports. It's fantasy. It's it's MMA, the wagering yeah. environment, like uh, betting, like there's just so many different avenues. So there's a mindset of I can be particular and wait for the right opportunity. If you don't want to pay me, I'm not going to come here and work for you for free. And, you know, there's it's whether you're monetizing yeah. off of so, social media. A kid just told me today, you know, what he makes off of his YouTube page and he's 16 years old. You know, they're, they're, they're far more savvy than I was. Put it that way. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that, that that that's a real grind. So merchandising like how do, you know correct me if i'm wrong right? it was it was ticket sales into merch right yeah ticketing was the in, in, the way in and and you know sometimes ticketing is frowned upon but for me it was the perfect first step into the sales environment and just the sports environment to i used to sit down it was like sports talk radio like to listen to fans sometimes they vented with some of the mets teams that i worked for i was there in 06 and a lot lot of you know great memories they they would come in and and give me sort of some of the answers to the test and i'd share that with other verticals within the within the organization but ticketing don't frown upon ticketing sales is a valuable tool in every of course, facet man. of life you had your ear to the ground of the fans and you were able to you know that's true old school social listening right there social listening not to mention i, I may or may not have faxed orders versus you know, digitally scanning them, so it just shows you when what the time frame we're dealing with. But yeah, no, to be able to get that real insight was extremely valuable for me as I have sort of moved into other roles, marketing and merchandising. I already had the pulse of the people. I knew what they wanted. They told me what color uniforms they'd like to see on field. They told me what, uh, what promotions we needed to give away. Like those are the the valuable insights that you might miss if you're you know immediately in marketing and you don't get a chance to, to engage with the, the fan base on a day in and day out basis. Yeah, no, that's, that's a big one. So you had a pretty long tenure with the Mets. Uh, Brooklyn, Brooklyn Nets came, came knocking or did you go knocking on that door? No. I, and this is, this is a theme throughout my career. Every opportunity I've been afforded has been a phone call from someone else who was pitched the job and felt that I was better suited for the role. So this has happened multiple times and we'll, we'll, we'll jump to Every step in my career, minus this Pistons, which I will get to, is a connection to a former colleague. My time from going to the Rams, my time going to the Nets, was somebody, in this case, turned down the job and just says, I'm not built for this. You have more of a brand focus and mindset, and I think you'd be better for it. And I was introduced to the CMO in Brooklyn, Elisa uh, Badia, who's still a mentor of mine today. And... Uh, her and I connected, and the rest is history. So you transitioned from venue services into merchandising. Was that part of the deal? You like you wanted to get into merch? Like, is it something that was a passion of yours? Is it is it was it the fashion apparel side of it, the marketing side of it? What about merchandising that really appealed? 
to you personally, but also your business sense? Yeah, so just to take a step yeah, back, when I when I got out of ticketing with the New York Mets and had the opportunity with someone who I rubbed shoulders with during my internship, as far as that inquisitive nature, he ended up hiring me for a merchandising coordinator role, which simply I was responsible for overseeing all the game used memorabilia. So I'd go into the locker room at the end of a game after being there at 7.30 in the morning, 8 o'clock, wait for the guys to finish their interviews, and then as they got undressed, as dirt we needed to grab it off the field outfield wall panels we take that catalog it sell it market it and that was my version of a lemonade stand and the perfect transition from the sales role because i was getting a little bit of marketing i had some sales in there and got a chance to work with a lot of departments throughout the organization how did how do they collect the on-field dirt for that is it literally like a little like spoon in there and just putting in like little jars it's it's shovel it's shoveled into a larger container and there's an MLB authenticator that watches it. You physically have Jeez. to take it off the mound or take it from home plate. So whenever major moments like um, uh, the uh, jo- Johan Santana, no, no the perfect game, like the no hitter. Sorry, not perfect, perfect game, no hitter. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't you had perfect. A walk in there, right? Um, yeah, the dirt off that mound is different than the one from the previous homestand or when Mariano Rivera. As a Yankee, you know, came in and got his 300 save, we collect, took that pitching rubber and the dirt from that mound. So there's a lot of things in, in the course of a game that you could grab baseballs, bases, you name it. We, we collected it. What's, what's, I mean, you've had to have your fair share of access to something. What's, what's your most prized baseball memorabilia that you have? It's probably from my favorite Met of all time, David Wright, just an, an, an autographed helmet. Uh, he's someone that I've developed a relationship with over time, someone whose career started right around the same time. He was at Norfolk um, when I was an intern, and AAA. I definitely uh, connected with him immediately. His his hustle, his approach, his uh, personality. I always appreciated how he welcomed and valued every member of the Mets organization, and uh, he's someone that as I developed a relationship over time, that that's like this is what ath- this is what an athlete should be. Let's let's pause on that for a second there because it brought up a. By the way, I got my my Pete Alonso autograph ball right there. It is. Uh, right there. Yes, yes. Uh, authenticated, but it's interesting too. And and just a little quick note, I think I told you this story too. Um, when I interned for the Buffalo Sabers, it was so interesting to watch how certain players interacted with the maintenance, the facility staff, right? The people, like how they treated them, that they weren't below them. And that says so much, man. That says so much, man. So Brooklyn Nets, man, right? You, you, 2012. I mean, that's when, that was, I think that's been the biggest thing to happen to sports in New York in a long time, the Nets coming to Brooklyn, and they've been fantastic. You know, what was that, dude, those early days, Barclays Center, state-of-the-art, beautiful. I remember that's, that's when, 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 when Andrew Schwartz, who connected us, um, went over there. That's when I connected. We actually pitched business to do graphics inside the, um, what do they call it, the, the, the Oculus, right? The Oracle. The Oculus. Yeah. yeah. Yes. But that, that had to be cool, man. I mean, Basketball in Brooklyn. Move over, Jersey. Remarkable. Um, Definitely one of those moments. I always look back to September 28th, uh, 2012, when when Jay-Z came out on stage, unveiled the the Nets jersey. I was like, wow, like this is special. And, you know, for me, growing up a Knicks fan, uh, not really – not really ever not saying pay attention to New Jersey Nets. Uh, obviously, they had some really good runs, but I was a Knicks guy through and through. So even when the opportunity presented to myself, it was it was very it was difficult to to fathom. Like, are you going to feel go like work a traitor? There? And then I started Did you feel to, like a... uh, def, definitely. My friends were questioning me. My family was questioning me. You know, I was like one of those guys. I'm talking. 
Hubert Davis, Tony Campbell. Like I'm talking not just the 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 Patrick Ewing and John Starks of the world. Oakley. I'm talking the 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 Oakleys of the world. I my life. The ebbs and flows of my life came from Nixon wins losses. Uh, Nick's <laughs> wins and losses. Nick's losses. Um, or Nick's playoff disappointments. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of epic years, yeah, though. Houston Rockets. Epic years. But the, the Brooklyn piece, the more I heard, you know, wow, Jay-Z's involved with the organization. The black and white color palette. I think they just got Darren Williams and Joe Johnson. Already had Brooke Lopez and really starting to build a formidable roster. Obviously, Brooklyn being a brand within itself and me being a brand guy and wanting to go and really showcase my talents. Like, it was a no-brainer, but it was difficult. I was with the Mets for eight years. That place will always feel like home. I've got a lot of family that still exists there. And, uh, you know, Brooklyn was just the next chapter in my life that I that I needed to tackle. Let, let I'd love to get you. I, I think from a from an outsider, insider, insider, outsider kind of point of view, um, the way they've handled building that brand aesthetically, the brand, the community, looping it all in, the merch, they're changing up the jerseys. They're doing a lot of really cool things there. Give us your inside basketball kind of take from a sports fan perspective and from a, a basketball merchandising fan engagement perspective of of, of this case study of the Nets, Brooklyn Nets merchandising and brand. Yeah, it, it starts with the campaign in 2012, Hello Brooklyn. And I, and I asked, because it was sort of in development as I, as I arrived. I was like, what's the premise? Like, well, we're just coming here. We're not going to barge our way in. We want to be welcoming. We want to introduce ourselves. And as the community welcomes us, our brand voice, our brand position become, becomes more comfortable. But we just can't come in here feeling like we're the, the new kid in town that's got all the answers. No, we're going to lean into our community and allow them to help dictate what the, the, the Nets brand is all about. How'd they do that? And uh, that, was, that was focus groups. That was really being out in the community. Really, even before the Jersey, you know, Jersey was still happening, we had a, a van that was driving around. It had a hoop on it. Um, and you know, models was <laughs> sponsored. We literally were just we were just activating in market and showing showing people that we were there to to show love. And you know, my my old CMO and mentor Brett Yormark, he, his his quote is, "If they like you, they will buy you." So don't be transactional out the gate. Like let's do some some feel good, and over time, like we can then go ask for their wallets. And, and, I, and was, I remember. Yeah, yeah, like like so you have to think about New York, right? New York was a was a Knicks town. It was the only game in town, right? It was the Knicks, and I got this other team coming in there, and, and I felt it because I, I was like a, a Knicks fan, but kind of fair weather. But Brooklyn was something to believe in. I'm Brooklyn born and raised, right? Like, aren't you from Brooklyn too? I grew up on Long Island, actually. Moved, Long Island. lived in Queens and Brooklyn for my adult life, but same Brentwood, Island. Long Island, same Brentwood Island. all day long. <laughs> same <laughs> Island, same Island, man. But like for us, it was like, thank God. Like it was, it was, it was. You know, it's funny. I remember talking to my dad about it. He was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. The Dodgers left, and and my dad's like, well, I can't be a Yankees fan right now. What the hell am I going to do? And then the Mets come into town, and that's how my dad became a Mets fan. That's, come, that's why I'm a Mets fan. And I felt like this was a moment in Brooklyn. This was a generational thing. This was something that Brooklyn needed right in the heart of downtown, right? They, it was where they put it, right in the middle of everything. And they've done a great job. But talk to us a little bit about the jerseys, the merch. They, I mean, they have so many variations these days. Yeah, no, we, we coined the phrase effortlessly cool. Like, that was the intent. So you saw... You know, probably 80% of the product that hit the marketplace as we built the brand said Brooklyn. Sometimes it didn't even say Nets on it. You just saw black and white Brooklyn, and it was synonymous with the Nets. 
And that was very intentional part of our process because, you know, Brand Brooklyn was always intended to be the insurance policy. <laughs> and then as the team developed, you could put, you know, build the equity around, continue to build the equity around nets. Um, so it was this perfect dichotomy of, of, of the two different pieces that uh, were used in unison to really build a brand and be relevant. Because some of those Nets teams weren't the greatest on court, but it was you were distracted because you walked into the 4040 club, you were downstairs in all the clubs and bars, and then... It was nice. It's a nice arena, man. It's all good. Right, like that. That arena is that. Are, that arena is is really nice. Yeah. No. The the acoustics, the acoustics for concerts, maybe a little bit off. The when the when the when the Islanders played there, the the the, uh, the scoreboard a little off center, but for everything, I mean, it was great. I mean, it's a nice place. Good food options, easy access from all the all the subways and everything. It's perfect. Yeah. No. Well, well designed, perfect location, and again, the local restaurant tours that were infused to be able to go get a slice of junior's cheesecake or calexico or wherever else you love to eat inside the building you had access and it really felt like you were bringing the community inside of a inside of a venue so the the next phone call comes hey i got this guy that'll be perfect for the la rams tell us about that thought process man <laughs> east coast guy yeah. packing and packing it up and taking his talents out west what kind of decision was that it was it was yeah, it was so it, was, it uh, was was there not the opportunity to move up into a place you wanted to be in Brooklyn, or was this too good with the Rams? No, it's great. In both times, even going back to the to the Mets, I was the youngest director in the organization as I left with a with a very high trajectory. Uh, same thing with the with the uh, Nets at the time. I was life was great. I actually met my wife, who was overseeing oh, entertainment cool. for the team uh, at the time, over the dancers and, and head choreographer, and we had just got engaged. So I was content with chilling in Brooklyn for Things a good. long this is home, time. Right? Uh, the team was, the, yeah, the team was on the up and up. The brand had never been stronger. Um, and a buddy of mine from the Golden State Warriors, a really good friend, he was approached by the Rams and they were looking for someone who can create sort of culture and a cool factor along with building the brand in the process. And the lifestyle piece was extremely important, knowing that they just moved from St. Louis to L.A., and it's a very competitive marketplace out there, and they wanted to find the right person who really understands sports licensing landscape and just, the you know, again, create the cool factor uh, for, the, for the Rams organization. He calls me. He goes, hey, the guy from the Rams just called me, really nice guy, seems like a great opportunity. He, he asked, I said, I know a guy in Brooklyn, but there's no chance in hell that he'd ever leave and move across country. Nah. He called me and I said, eh, I'd move across country for the right opportunity because, you know, I after the Mets role, I my resume wasn't up to date when, when I got that opportunity from my, from my colleague to go and interview for the Nets. And I said, I'd never do myself that disservice ever again of not being ready and at least hearing people out. Even if I decided to stay at the Mets, I just needed to listen. Sometimes it could validate my roles, responsibilities, my salary. Just listen to people. It doesn't hurt. So this time I was ready, and um, I, I said, let's have a conversation. There's a sound clip there, people. Timestamp, market, that's a clip right there. I want everyone to pause on that for a second because you hit, you hit a, a really key important lesson there, and I tell this to folks. I'm a recruiter. It's what I do. We reach out to people, and a lot of people just kind of brush us off aside. But if there's a little spark of interest, something that caught your attention to open that email, take that phone call. Because listen to what Tyrell just said there. It could be the next best thing that you never even thought about, which we'll talk about in a second here. Or it could literally justify what you're doing now and why you're happy with what you're doing because you're hearing about another opportunity. You're like, hey, 
what I'm doing right now is great. I don't, I don't need to move. So I want everyone to kind of pause on that for a little bit. So this opportunity with the Rams comes across and you're thinking about, wow, this is, this is actually pretty cool. And did you make the decision once you got to a point in your head, Terrell, where like, this is good. This is something I want. How'd you, was, how'd you approach your fiance or you married at that point? Um, I was not. All right. Married, so how'd that conversation so, go, man? <laughs> so, you know, I keep her in the, the loop and, of course. you know, I just dropped the bomb one day. I was like, Hey, how'd you, you like to move to LA? And, you know, on a personal note, you know, I lost my dad when I was 17 in high school, lost my mom, uh, when I was 34. So that was pretty fresh. And, you know, they always challenged me to be ambitious and to push boundaries. And I'm a family man first and foremost. So I felt like I owed it to them to hear out the opportunity and to try something new. I'd been in the New York market. I'd, I'd, I'd crushed it at two teams that were powerhouses in the market. And I said, this is an opportunity for me to go and flourish. I don't have a family yet. I'm not married. I've got, a, got a fiance. Mm -hmm. If she's down for it, let's, let's, let's take adventure. the journey uh, across it. country. And here we are, and, you know, there we were in, in L.A. And, you know, it was, it was a great move. Very difficult to leave Brooklyn because she had ties there, too. She was still working for the organization, as was I. So to say goodbye to the That's Nets tough. was was really difficult. I shed, I shed a lot of real tears. It was, it was emotional, for sure. That, that's a tough one. So let's really talk about it. You're, the opportunity to build, integrate, you know, merchandising, lifestyle, community. Let's unpack that a little bit because this is this is your bread and butter. This is your this is your specialty. This isn't just you know throwing a, a Rams logo on a, on a T-shirt, but it's really about the thoughtfulness of it, what it means to the fans, who are the fans. But let's break it down for people. Let's let's really unpack this a little bit, like the true the true art and science of of sports merchandising. Yeah, and I'll, I'll use examples from different stops along yeah. the way. Yeah, uh, bring it all together. As we touched on the Nets, but. For me, there, there's this intersection of, of culture and sports. You know, when you think about a player arrival gallery in the NFL or, or NBA, like it's what they're wearing. It's the music they're listening to. It's the art galleries that they're visiting. It's the food that they're posting on their Instagram. I want to be in the middle of all, all those conversations, typically knowing that's where our fans probably are as well. They emulate what they see our players do. And it's been important for me to infuse culture in every step of the way. If you just want me to market a sports team, I'm probably not the right person for you. And I've carved out my niche. When you think about Biggie Smalls and, and me being a part of that and playing a very integral role in the ideation and execution of Biggie Smalls on a uniform and working with the estate, working directly with Miss Wallace and, and Wayne Barrow and Elliot and, and Mark Pitts, all guys who have been affiliated with Biggie's estate, his children, like, I wanted to do that right. Kick gloves and show Brooklyn some love. Where Brooklyn at? Like, that was real. I wanted to live up to the, the legacy that Biggie had built. And what better way to do that than to recognize him with a, with a uniform on court? That was like, incredible. Next level. Next level. That was, I, I, get, I remember that. That was, that was, that's, that, I mean, what, I mean, what's more iconic than Biggie in Brooklyn? Brooklyn Biggie, yeah, it's, like it's it's they're they're synonymous with one another. It's it's crazy. I know you got one of those jerseys at home. Oh right? yeah, yeah, several, several. You know, I, I, that that <laughs> that's a project that I will uh, when I'm sitting in a nursing home somewhere and people want to start to take a trip down memory lane. I will tell me the story of the Biggie jersey, <laughs> <laughs> Grandpa T. Right, so so I 
but the, the key lesson there, I mean, so you're finding, but all right, so LA, right? Like what, what's, what's the icon? What's the vibe that you're tying into the merch? I mean, this is a completely different, this ain't Brooklyn. Yeah, no, it was, it was extremely important that we lean in, right? Every environment you go to, it's not intended to be rinse and repeat cookie cutter. Like exactly. we got to come in, survey the landscape and find unique ways to connect with, with, with culture, connect with the city, but meaningful, not just checking a box because hey not surface level somebody's creating a, a really dope product that is going to be available for all 30 teams or 32 teams in the NFL like no go give me the one on one so that angelinos when they see what the rams are rolling out what we're pushing out like they can be proud of it and it's connecting it's connecting directly to them and you had another challenge there too cuz you you also had you had St. Louis fans that were either going to follow the team or they're disgruntled and they're finding a new fan base there too. How did you, what were some of the challenges of being mindful to the existing fan base from a merchandising perspective? Yeah, I think that's where you have to look at the assets that you're afforded. So in that, in that case, especially in the beginning where SoFi wasn't open yet and we were playing at the Coliseum, it's like, okay, well, how much brand Ram stuff are you going to lean into? How much brand Los Angeles are you going to lean into? So you can be mindful mm-hmm. of the entire pie. And I, the segmentation is you can't you can't be everything to everyone, but you know in sports licensing space there is a mixture of licensees that afford you the opportunity to say hey my older generation they might like polos and quarter zips but I can go work with a streetwear brand like Born right. and Raised to come up with a killer collaboration that we know we're going to be really appealing to the next gen of fans and younger generation so um, it's it's definitely a, a balancing act but I've been doing it a long time and have a, a really good sense of how to maximize each of those opportunities. Are you a football guy? I am. I'm a basketball guy through and through, as you can tell, with two stints in the NBA. But uh, I, I love I love, I love, love the NFL. I'm a, I'm a Rams fan. I actually grew up a childhood Buffalo Bills fan. Yep. So I got an AFC team and, a, and an NFC team. Oh, man. I can tell you some funny stories about Ralph Wilson Stadium. I went to school up in Buffalo, but we digress here. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, at this stage of your career, right? I mean, it's, it's – uh, through August of, of last year of, of 2020, um, what, what was that at this point in your career? You know, you're, you're pretty high up, pretty accomplished there. Was there, was there something about moving over to LA, something about the, the, the new group of folks that you were working with that maybe, maybe it was a misstep. Maybe it was an assumption. Maybe it was an overcalculation that you had a course correct on. No, um, I'd still be there today. I will say the group of people that I work with at the Rams were, were some of the smartest individuals I've ever met. The the COO there, Kevin Demoff, my former boss, and the guy, Jamie Regal, who hired me, who went to go work for Formula E. Um, you know, they they were next level. They were trying to push the boundaries, obviously, with this state-of-the-art oh, SoFi yeah. Stadium that Mr. Kroenke built. Um, you know, it was they were they were embracing the next chapter so i was excited to get in on the ground floor of 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 the change and be a part of it you know having worked at you know worked at shea but experienced city field which of its kind say what you want about yankee stadium a lot of people will give credit that city field is a better better experience um yeah from a fan experience perspective then barclay center and the newness of that obviously that you can't beat the nostalgia of msg but if you're talking about a new venue in the market and you want to go polar opposite but still be super compelling, like Barclays Center is – It could hold its own perfect, against MSG in many uh, ways. I mean, listen, there's only one MSG. Uh, oh. And I still say it's the best place on earth to see an indoor concert. It's a remarkable place. You walk through those halls. I've been there hundreds of times, and each time you get that same chill. So 
I, I know I know exactly that feeling that you're alluding to, and you know, then going to go going to um, LA and being a part of SoFi, being part of the planning committee, and helping to build out some of the retail environments. I was pumped, and my wife. I don't do things for the short term. I was with the Mets for eight years. I was with the Brooklyn Nets for six. I had every intent to be with the Rams for at least five, if not more, because mm. palm trees and sunshine are just the, the added bonus. Traffic, not so much, but the other elements of L.A., it, it, it's hard so to what happened, man? How, how did Detroit come calling? <laughs> so this business, this business is all about relationships. And a former colleague of mine who, um, in the January of 2020, right before things hit the fan in uh, the world, we were at the Rock Nation brunch uh, in, in Los Angeles. He invited me. He was working for Rock Nation at the time, but we previously spent all of our time working at the Nets together. He's like, I got this opportunity to go and become the chief business officer for the Detroit Pistons, and it's going to be a while before I hear back. It's a long, tedious interview process, but if I if I get the gig, you're going to be my first call. And I said, and then Mike Zavatsky, I said, Z, appreciate you, love you, and wish you the best of luck. However, if you get that gig, um, I'm I'm good. Like I just moved here. There's no way I'm convincing my wife to move across country for the second it's time the in two marriage. years. No <laughs> chance in hell. Happy wife, happy life. <laughs> not good. Not good for the marriage at all. But you know, he ended up getting the gig, and he called me. I was his first call, and you know, I had always been the the merch guy and enjoyed being the merch guy, but, but never ever isolated myself to being in a box of just being about sports licensing and merchandising. I always thought about the brand. That Biggie piece came with community activations. It came with corporate sponsorship opportunities. So I was really impacting the entire organization. However, you know, I would always run into challenges of like, you got to go to someone else to get the budget approved if you want to bring this initiative to life. And the dream that he sold me on was like, you can have you have the opportunity to come over come over to Detroit and lead brand and marketing strategy and have several verticals that report into you and you can use the power of all those respectable respective brand components to create really immersive and powerful stories and that that was really really compelling at the time and uh, was a is a strong reason why I, I ended up making the move How to have a greater role it? and responsibility. <laughs> Yet again, another difficult conversation. But I will tell you, my, my my wife on our wedding, which we ended up getting married while we were at, at while we were working at while I was working at the Rams, she wore a shirt on on our uh, wedding rehearsal. No, the day after the wedding, it said "Ride or Tie," and that's just a true testament to who she Love is. It. She's going to ride for me to the bitter end, and um, and that's what I appreciate about her. And obviously, you know, make whatever sacrifice she needs. In her world, and that's what makes us the perfect pair. But uh, it, it, I love it. I love it. And it's about that partner. It's having that partner in your life who supports you, ride or die. And I love it. Um, let's talk about the Shop Three One Three initiative. Tell us the roots of it and a little bit about how it came to life and what it means to you. Yeah. So the the Pistons, we've we've really leaned in. Um, it's I used to visit the city as a kid, have family here. Uh, but coming here and just seeing the, the sense of community, the pride, uh, it's a beautiful city. I know there are some, some, some false narratives out there in certain circles, um, but you know what? It's, it's our best secret, to be honest. And the Pistons last year, we, we really leaned into the brand and had this whole D-Up campaign where it was really about the continual rise of the city. 
Obviously, D-up is also a basketball term, and the, the, the double entendre of hopefully D-ing up, winning games, and the continual rise, too, of our young core and young team that was developing on court. But Shop 313 was really a byproduct of all the things we did in the community. You know, working with small businesses during the middle of a pandemic, giving some of our, you know, all of our front office staff some dollars to go just infuse money into into local economies that were struggling during a pandemic, like black-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, just to show them some love, but also putting them on a pedestal, bringing them out. We had 750 people last year, Max, but we used to push out on our social channels and showcase them in venue to say, look at this local business that's thriving. Yeah, they've been able to really innovate in, in the most troubling of times. And that led to Shop 313, which really centered us with our partnership with Shopify and showing them love, uh, businesses love and partnership with them to give them what they need to succeed. So e-commerce being such an integral part, working with them. How can we optimize their e-commerce experience to make sure they're hitting a larger audiences, maxing, maximizing on SEO and giving them actually our assets on game day. So we're going to select 82 game, 82 games this year, home and away. We're going to select 82 businesses in which they will be featured and get all the assets that we would use to promote a game. They will be the presenting sponsor. So it's, it's remarkable, give, like it's really a, showing a, love to small it's businesses. It's a give back integration and it's building, it's building that bond between the community, real, real true integration. Now that's, that's, that's yeah. huge, man. Big Sean, big, Big Pistons fan. How how'd you get him on board to uh, be the creative director of innovation? That's a good story, man. Oh, great, great story. And obviously, Big Sean, phenomenal artist, human being. You know, I said in the beginning, I knew who Big Sean the artist was going into this dynamic. I never knew who Sean Anderson was, and I've getting to know him. Uh, he's an even better person. He's a phenomenal artist, but even a better person. And you know, I think there had been ongoing conversations about how he can be involved. Obviously, Mike Zavosky having worked for Rock Nation, he's rep by Rock Nation. So that started right. the conversation. But then we started to tell him all the things that we had going on. How we... And not just a namesake. You want to really be involved, right? You didn't just want to slap his name on something and sell shit. Like, that's not what this story is about. No, not at all. And honestly, he didn't want to just slap his name on things either. It was, it was important and imperative, really, on his side. It's like, how are we leaning into the community? Are we giving youth of tomorrow a real opportunity to succeed and providing resources that are going to take them to the next level? What are we doing on the court? Like, what do our uniforms look like? What's our in arena environment? And as our creative director of innovation, that's what we work with him on. And he is not absent. He's on calls with Nike. He's, you know, really participating in all facets of our business. Um, this coming weekend, he's got Don Weekend here in Detroit. We're, we're going in it as a joint effort and really going to celebrate the city, celebrate the youth, and awesome. continue to provide access and, and resources to ensure we're doing our part in our community. What's 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 the biggest takeaway of that relationship for for the Pistons? I mean, his reach, you know, and and his his love for the game and the city, like the fact that we can we can do this in in, in tandem with him, and get his instant feedback, um, his reach, the amount of you know, it's all about tapping into new audiences. When when he talks about us, the 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 amount of new followers and and newly engaged. Um, Attend, you know, uh, new and engaged audiences, like we we welcome that and we realize the power. But we want to be there for every step. So we celebrate his his album anniversaries. He obviously had some new music drop. 
we push that out. You know, it's really a, a beautiful two-way street. And his mom, his mom oversees his foundation and his business team. They're all fully immersed. Good stuff. Uh, we just, we're actually just wrapping up. He's hiring an intern. We did a huge thing with TikTok resumes. Yeah. Uh, where people got a chance to submit their resumes via TikTok. No paper resume. And the world we is changing, my friend. <laughs> changing indeed. The, wor yes, the indeed. world is changing, my friend. So, you know, hopefully you'll be here for a few years. I mean, is, is there something... Now listen, we're not giving anything away here, but you're looking to stay in Detroit for a long time for the long haul. Yeah, for certain. I, I mean, again, I like to, I like to see things through because I know my, my impact. While it may be felt in the immediate, sometimes like I look for the greater gain in in seeing the fruits of my labor really pay off. And you know, we'll get into leadership and other things. But I also, right? Like this is about. I'm at the stage 38 years old. I, I've seen it all. I've I've done a lot. It's the reward for me is seeing my direct reports flourish and seeing them thrive and ensuring that they're in a better position when they were 30 than I ever was. And hopefully they'll surpass me at a young age. So that's what I'm really focused on, the the, the, the growing and, and seeing like the Kirkham farm system, who I'm putting in the pros and taking them to the I next I couldn't even level. ask for a better transition as a podcast host here. So, talk, so talking about leadership, if you had to summarize your kind of leadership mantra and ethos in, in one line, well, my, I, my boss called it a servant leader um, in my review this year. Um, I, I like to immerse myself and really understand what my staff is going through on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I want to be in the trenches with them, but no one to remove myself and give them the opportunity to flourish on their own. Um, I want to listen. I want to know their personal life and what's going on with their family and how I can be of assistance. You know, mental health is real. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they know that my, my physical office is open, my virtual office is open, um, that, that's important to me. You know, I, I've, I, I'm of the belief that, you know, you get the most out of people when you can lean in and, and really feel like they're part of it. And the work, is, the work is the work. And I will never, ever discount the work. But it's about the personal bonds. We're in the trenches together 12, 16-hour days. If they have a boss that just delegates and it leads as if it's a totalitarian environment, it's not going to bode well for the output. And I think that's also important as you think about diversity of thought and making sure everybody has a chance to weigh in. Those are all things that I that I value and, and my staff would say as well. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more, man. And anybody who's working working underneath you, working for you, they're, they're lucky there. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. What are, you, what are your thoughts on NFTs specifically in, in, in the sports world? I mean, hot or not? Is it a gamble? Is it a long-term play? Is this the future? What are your thoughts on NFTs? I mean, it's definitely hot. <laughs> and you know, as a marketer, you've got to be you got to be aware of the trends and you know do your due diligence. So we we've entered into the NFT space. You know, the NBA sort of regulates what mm -hmm. we can and can't Big do. Time. Um, but we've seen a positive response and, you know, if the market warrants it, you, you got to explore it. And I, I do think they're here to stay just based on the collectability. It's been really nice. I'm sure you can attest. You go back to your, your, your baseball, your basketball card collection from the, from the nineties, oh, yeah. like that's how we collected, but it just shows Technology, you the evolution man. of collectibles. Yeah. yeah. And not to mention the tangible sort of baseball cards are on fire right Everything now. Everything old you, is you new can't, then. Everything old is new. Yeah. Yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, what would, what would you know, 38-year-old Tyrell go back and say to, you know, 21-year-old Tyrell, what advice would you give him? 
stop and appreciate moments. Um, I think for the longest, I, I was that guy who was literally, I know it sounds cliche, but first in, last out. I'm talking, especially when I was grinding, working in the game use stuff, even in ticketing. I was I was there 7, 8 o'clock in the morning, leaving 10, 11 p.m. I was, I was single, and I knew that I needed to put in the work, not to say I would stop and put my take my foot off the gas but like that's where i had to prove myself to let everybody know to build brand tyrell um i needed to put in the work and i there's just some moments that i just let pass that i didn't celebrate and applaud myself for and i would say especially in my younger years i was very scared to speak up i'm a very soft-spoken and i used to just let things fly under the radar without speaking up. There were moments where I probably should have said something. I had a great idea that I held back. And it wasn't until I got to Brooklyn where I had that freedom and people yeah, gave listen. me that I was empo felt empowered to be able to speak up. You mentioned Brett Yormick, who I don't know personally, but I've been following his career for, and I know of him for, for a long time, being a, a strong mentor to you. But what, whether it's from Brett or anyone else, what's the single greatest piece of advice that you've ever received that you take action on every single day, Ty? Oh, man, I've got a million Brett-isms, a million. Uh, but I'm going to go back to a quote that I, I say often, uh, and it's, it's from an old basketball coach, to be honest. It, it was, to have what you have not, you must do what you have not done. And that specifically goes back to learning how to make a left-handed layup. And at the time, I didn't really I truly understand it in its full context, but he just said, if you want to make a left-handed layup and stop jumping off your left foot, like, you got to practice it. You got to do what you have not done. And if you just keep going to your right, then that's what you're going to be subjected to for the rest of your life. And that mindset has stuck with me every step of the way. And I'd like to make myself uncomfortable to do those things that I have not done to ensure that I'm continuing to fine-tune my skills. Anyone listening to this, I am nodding my head nonstop on this because I couldn't agree more. You have to, you, to, growth comes from the discomfort. Growth comes from putting yourself out there for trying something new. Otherwise, it's just going to be doing the same thing all the time. And last but not, last but not least, Harold, you, you look back on your, on your career journey. You look back to those tough times, uh, you know, losing your father at an early age, losing your mom more recently in life. And those times are tough and you had to pull yourself up and you had to stay strong. And you had to harness that inner tenacity to pull yourself forward. And throughout your career, all these steps, going into a new city, establishing yourself, that had to be uncomfortable. You had to figure it out. You had to make a name for yourself, but you still had to harness that tenacity to drive you. And you look back now, beautiful wife, family, success. You're building a legacy here in Detroit, man. What keeps you focused? Tyrell Kirkham, what is your North Star? My North Star is just, again, the people that come after me, whether it's it's a child, whether it's younger family members. i got two nieces that look up to me, whether it's an employee on my staff. It's ensuring the work that I put in puts them in a better place when it's all said and done. And that is why I go. This That is why I'm still driven. 17 years later, I've been in this business a long time. Um, I value relationships and hopefully the legacy that I'm building um, is a byproduct of all those people that came before me that wanted the same thing that I want for the people that are going to come after me. And that, that's, that's my drive and that's my why. And um, I won't stop until that's memorialized. And I will tell you this, you know, um, recently we, we honored a couple people during uh, a lot of people during black history month this year. And 
Uh, one in particular was this guy, Terrence Wheeler, and, and Derek Coleman, the Derek Coleman. And Derek Coleman was speaking, and he, he, he talked about this dash, right? He's like, when you your tombstone, right, 1983 through whatever year. Maybe I lived to 2060. Who knows? But, like, when it's all said and done, what will that dash truly represent? And, you know, it could be work milestones. And for me, it needs to be, you know, work milestones are great. It's also what type of person, what type of human being was he? Like, did he care about his family? Did he did he love others? Did he treat them all fair and equal? Like that dash and, and whoever's reading my eulogy, if you're listening, like that dash hopefully is well represented when the time comes. Powerful words, my man. Thank you. This was This was good. This is what I mean. This is what this show is all about. This is what the podcast is all about. It's unpacking. The career journey. This had to be cathartic for you a little bit, right? Dude, it's like a therapy oh, session sure. here. That was, dude, that, I, sure. I, I, I want to thank you. And I really hope everybody listening uh, enjoyed, it, enjoyed it as much as, as Terrell and I did having this conversation. So much gold in the mountains, man. And I appreciate your time. I appreciate you sharing. Where could folks find you? Where could they connect with you? Where could they learn more? And listen, uh, first off, I want to thank you for having me. Podcast, best in the business. I've thank listened you. to other episodes. Phenomenal. Um, you can find me on, on LinkedIn. You can find me probably private, but I promise I'll accept you. Tyrelevant on on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I love it, man. Thank you so much for joining us. Everyone listening at home, you know where to find more at thepodcast.com. If you like this episode, if you love it, share it. Sharing means caring. It goes a long way. That's how we spread the word. That's how we spread the word of the podcast. Just great conversations with folks like Tyrell and just sharing, sharing experiences, sharing learnings. That's that's what it's all about. And that's the beauty of the podcast. Thank you, Tyrell. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, everyone, for listening at home. Remember, take care of each other. Look out for one another and catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever. But for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The Pausecast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com. <laughs>